You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. All right, so be uh, full of cheer. You can almost see the finish line of Job. Uh, we're getting close. So tonight we're going to be in chapters 29 through 31. And uh, we're going to hear some more from Job this evening. Last week we saw Job as he showed us his full range of emotions, right? As he cursed his three friends. And then he talked about finding uh, true wisdom from God and the importance of that. And so this week he's going to continue this roller coaster as he tries to, to wade through what he's experiencing and his struggle to understand why he's experiencing what he's experiencing, right? And he, he's going to fondly look back and remember his days before all of these things have happened to him. And he's going to compare the good old days with what he's experiencing now. And, and to Job, none of it makes sense, right? Because he sees himself as being treated like he's a wicked man, but he's not a wicked man. And, and he agrees on some level with his friend's view that the wicked are punished by God, Right, But he's, he also believes there's got to be more to it because I seem to be experiencing the same thing that these wicked people are experiencing, but I'm not wicked, so something's up. And that's the root of Job's confusion and his frustration. And so he's going to close out uh, this week in chapter 31 by he's going to give one more defense of himself. And uh, it's, it's slightly aimed at the three friends that we've heard from for so many weeks. And it's also aimed at God. So we're going to dive in and start with chapter 29. It says, And Job again took up his discourse. So he started talking again. And he said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters. With the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited, and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners." So, so Job started here in chapter 29, and he's looking back on the days before all of this destruction in his life, and he looks back fondly 
because he's tired of the predicament that he's in and he wishes for better days, right? He says, oh, that I was in the months of old as in the days when God watched over me. He's essentially saying here, I miss the good old days, back when God actually watched over me. See, there's, a, there's an accusation there like God's not watching over anymore. I miss the good old days because that's when God watched over me. He says, basically, that was a time in my life when God felt near to me. He lit my path as we were in close communion. We had a close relationship. I felt his presence. And that's a direct contrast to how Job feels in this moment. right? He feels like God's far away. So Job certainly misses the benefits of his previous life, but we have to make a note that he, what he really misses is communion with God. And he goes on to lament that, that prior to chapter 1 and 2, he was in his prime. He was a productive individual. And we all, we all have this deep longing to be useful and productive. And, and Job is saying that I, I was that guy at one time. I was productive, but not anymore, not today. He says God was around him, and that seems to, to imply that his productivity, that I was a productive man because of God's favor. God was close to me, and that's why I was productive. And so he, he's looking back on those days fondly, and he even laments that during those days, my kids were still around, he says. So all of these thoughts are running through his head. Now my kids were even around then. So he still feels that loss of a child, and that's something that Job's going to carry with him forever. And if, if you know, and I think most of us in here do, if you know anyone that's lost a child, it, it appears to be, I can't speak firsthand because I, I haven't been in that situation, but it appears to be something that you just never really fully shake. You can't to, truly and totally get rid of it. And that's the predicament that Job's in. And he, he also says, in those days I was prosperous, right? Things were good. He makes the reference to butter and oil and fat, which is just a way of them saying things were good in those days. I had everything I needed. When I went out into the town square, right, that's the place of business. That's the place where things would happen. And Job says, when I go out there into the town square amongst the people, I had some standing. I had some influence. I had some authority. I was somebody. I meant something to people. But now I don't mean anything. I don't have any of those things that I used to have. He says, back in the days, people would listen to me. And, and it's real interesting to note that He's feeling the conversation still that we've gone through the last several weeks. He says, back in the day, people would listen to me and nobody would question me. But what have I just experienced with my three friends? They question everything I say. So he's comparing those days with the conversations that he's had with his friends. And we can also, I think, make a healthy assumption that there have been additional conversations or additional commentary as people have just walked by. And he's saying, when I was in the town square, people used to think of me as somebody. But now, even my three friends question everything I say, and all of these people walk by and heckle me. Because I'm sitting here in the trash dump. I, I'm of no value anymore. I think we have to understand that the importance in these verses, the importance in what Job is saying, is not necessarily found in its complete accuracy. Right? There's no doubt that Job had it better or appeared to have it better before the events of, of Job chapter 1 and 2. But it's also reasonably possible to believe that Job's embellishing this a little bit, right? I mean, because he's hurting. He's hurting. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're all guilty of that very same thing, right? It's a, it's a fish story. We talked this morning about we have a fish fry in June. I mean, it's a fish story. 
the, the further you get away from the day that you caught the fish, what happens? The fish gets bigger. Every day that goes by, the fish gets a little bit bigger. And that's the same thing that's happening here with Job. The, the more difficult Job's days become, the more appealing the days before were. That's why he's saying, man, I wish I could go back to the good old days. What these verses really tell us, where the, what's important here from these verses, is they tell us how Job feels. Right? We, don't, we don't have to cling to the fact that they're 100% accurate. Job may be embellishing a little bit, but we know how he feels. He's hurt, and he's confused, he's frustrated. Right? And we don't have to doubt that. And he goes on, and so he, so he talked about the, the good old days, and he's saying, this is, this is when I was blessed. I'm not blessed now. This is when I was blessed. And now he's going to go on and tell us, I think, why I was blessed. And, and I want to be real careful. I've tried to study. I don't want to put words into Job's mouth or apply the wrong context to what he's saying. But as we get to the end of chapter 29, it's, it's, it appears dangerously close to this declaration from Job as this is, this is why I was blessed. Right? He clearly states that, that when his actions were seen and known, and when the words he spoke were heard, he was blessed and called blessed. And, and because is the key word there. Also notice all the eyes that you see in chapter 29 from Job. This is a little scary there to me. But he says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had no help. I put on righteousness like clothes. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I even helped those that I didn't know. I wasn't just helping my friends. I helped people that I didn't know. I even dealt with the unrighteous. Job's, what he's trying to do is work through his frustration and confusion. But he's also pushing back against his friends as well. Remember what he was confused of? I mean, what he was accused of? He's accused of oppressing others. And yet here he's saying emphatically, I did the opposite. I was a friend of the poor and the needy. But Job is is drawing the conclusion that the reason that I was blessed is because of the things that I did. I did these things and therefore God blessed me. And And I really believe that this belief that Job has, it's, it's on some level, it's selfish and it's contractual, right? Like, if I do this, you do this. So God, I'm going to do this, and then you're going to bless me. It's a little selfish and contractual, and I think that that thought process has led to his confusion and his frustration, right? Because he's saying, I did all these things, and yet I'm being treated like a wicked man, and so therefore, you must be punishing me. Why are you punishing me? It doesn't make sense because the way that I see the world, these things don't line up. So he's frustrated. He goes on to say that he really believed, he said, I really believe that I would have enjoyed this blessed life forever. He compares himself to a tree by water. It's, it's, a, it's real close to a parallel with Psalm 1, right? He says, I was this tree and my roots stretched really deep to where the water was, which led to me flourishing. He says, the dew on all the branches, right? He's talking about prosperity, and he's basically saying, everything I touch prospered. 
But again, I would, I would challenge you to look and say, he says, then I thought I shall die in my nest. I thought it was going to be this way forever. And that I shall multiply my days as the sand. They're never ending. My roots, notice that, my roots spread out to the water with all the dew all night on what? On my branches. So there's a lot of emphasis. Job's putting a lot of emphasis on himself, which we're going to come back to here in a minute. But he comes back around in verse in, in later and he says, people used to listen to me. They used to listen to me. They waited for me. They didn't just listen. They waited. They waited for the words to come out of my mouth. And after I spoke, they didn't speak again. My word just dropped on them and they heard me and that's what they wanted to hear. And it was good and I was called blessed and I was considered wise. But now I'm dealing with guys that won't, won't listen and anytime I say something, they just talk back to me. Why can't I just go back to the old days? That's what he says. Where have those good old days gone? Where's my comfort? Why can't it be like it used to be? There's some danger there, and we'll come back to that here in a minute. But go on to verse 30, or chapter 30, and he shifts from the good old days now to the difficulty of what I'm actually living out today. He says, but now, so you see the transition, the shift, so the good old days, but now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands? Men whose vigor is gone. Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick saltward and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They're driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in the holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together, a senseless and nameless brood. They have been wiped out of the land, and now I have become their song. I'm a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me, because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence." On my right hand they rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. Translation, they're really good at it. <laughs> As through a wide breach they come. Amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken a hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me out like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death, and to the house appointed for all the living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruin stretch out his hand, and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up 
in the assembly and cry for help. I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with the heat. My lyre is turned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. Job had a very high opinion of his former life, of the days before all of these things had struck him. But now Job despises his current situation. He he reminisces of how all, both young and old, would seek his wisdom and they would listen to his words. And now all they do is laugh at him. And Job specifically mentions that, that those that are younger than him laugh at him. It's easy for us to miss that significance because our culture operates in so many ways that are so counter to to their culture. The culture of Job's day and most of the biblical culture, they placed a high importance on respect and honor. I mean, it's considered an honor culture. And for a young person to show disrespect towards an elder would have been highly controversial and strongly frowned upon. And yet that's the situation that Job finds himself. It's a major insult that a person younger than him would hurl insults at him. And we struggle to grasp the magnitude of what Job's saying because in our day and age, it's commonplace for young people to disrespect those that are older than them. And especially once you turn uh, towards the age of a senior citizen, and there's a lot of wisdom there, but now we, don't, we disregard those people. We place a lot of emphasis on youth. I mean, if you just look in the workforce, that's the truth. It's a lot more difficult for someone that's 55 to get a job than someone that's 25. So our culture is completely different. It's hard for us to miss that. But Job is, is really stricken because someone younger than him would hurl inserts at him and count him as worthless. He adds weight to this charge, so that's bad enough. This guy's younger than me, and he's hurling insults at me. Does he not know how this culture works? That's bad enough, but he adds weight to the charge by essentially declaring that the fathers of these same young individuals, they're worthless. He says, I wouldn't even have hired them for even the most meaningless tasks. I wouldn't leave them in the field. And so what we see from Job here, we've seen in the past, this is another greater to lesser argument from Job. He's saying, if the fathers are worthless, how much more worthless are the children? And yet they mock me. Not only do they mock me, they even spit in my face. They have no restraint. So the question is, is why? Why do they mock me? Why do they have no restraint? And Job shares his belief. It's because God has allowed it. And you can feel the confusion from Job because the, then he, he would ask, well, why would, a God, why would God allow such a thing to happen? It doesn't make sense. Not only am I being mocked in the most offensive way possible, but my soul, body, and mind are in anguish. There is no part of me that's in peace. I've gone from a man who was worthy to a man that's considered worthless. That's where I am. And he puts it all on the hand of God. He says in verse 18, it's almost like God's choking me. And not only is he choking me, but he's thrown me in the mud. I'm the lowest of the low because of him. What Job's saying is that as far as he's concerned, God has abandoned him and is ignoring him. It's interesting because I don't think we could pin this on Job before, 
But these words of Job on some level support the argument from Eliphaz that we saw in chapter 22. Do you think God's honestly forgotten you? Job, Job feels that way. It's like he's choked me. He's thrown me in the mud. I'm the lowest of the low because of him. And I feel like that God's going to kill me. That's what Job says. He's going to kill me. I got no hope. I'm, I won't say that word on, at church. But I'm, I'm, it's over. It's over. He's going to kill me. I can't see a different outcome. He's convinced of that fate. And he can't understand why God would kick a man when he's down. Why won't God relent at all? In verse 25, Job says, Did not I weep? Again, we see another I statement. Did, I, did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? Job's just saying, listen, this is, this is not the way that I've treated other people that were in a similar situation to me. When someone was needy, I reached out and gave him a hand. So who could be more possibly needy than me, and yet God won't stick his hand out? Doesn't make any sense. All, all, all God does is, is send me more darkness and difficulty. I ask for good, but I just get evil. Job's just begging for mercy. He's at the end of his rope. This is his final defense. And, and he's at the end of his rope. He just wants mercy. That's all he's asking for. But he's not getting it. He doesn't feel like life could get any worse. That's the point that he's made very clear. I'm, he's going to kill me. He mentions an, interest, in, an instrument here. My lyre has turned to mourning. He's just saying, listen, this is what I used to rejoice and praise God, and now I only have the ability to use it for mourning. That's how bad my life is. The summary of his argument is that life, that not just life in general, his life is unbearably hard, and it's become clear that God's against me. I don't know why, but God's against me. And so what he's going to do is he's going to go to the only place that he knows to go, and he's going to provide one last defense in chapter 31. He says, we're going to see another handful of eyes here, but he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways? I mean, can you hear him crying out here? Can you not see me? Do you not know who I am? Do you not number all my steps? If I've walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows from, for me be rooted out. If my heart's been enticed towards a woman and if I've lain vain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let her bow down on her. Let others bow down on her. For what would be a heinous, for that would be a heinous crime that would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, and it would burn to the root of all my increase. If I've rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? 
If I've withheld anything that the poor desire to have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has, has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I, I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exulted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude, and the contempt of families terrified me, so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me, and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment, and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat, and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So this is the last we're going to hear from Job. It's a final defense. He's got nothing left to say. This is the best that he can offer to defend himself and his integrity. In previous chapters, Job's shown his belief in the power and sovereignty of God. And yet here we still see that Job desires a direct correlation between his actions and how he perceives God to be treating him. He's going to defend himself by talking about all the things that he's done. He's going to point to his own character and his integrity. In other words, he's just going to list, he lists all the good things that he's done and the evil that he's avoided. He starts by saying, I've declared that I've made a covenant with my eyes. This is a simple way to say, I didn't lust after women. I committed myself to a life of purity and I've been faithful to it. And later in the chapter, he goes on and says, I've, I've not only not lusted after a woman, a sin of the heart, but I've also avoided any impropriety or an adulter, adultery, a sin of action. So I haven't acted and I haven't even thought. I'm pure. He says, he says I'm not a liar. I don't practice deceit. What I do is I've treated others fairly. He speaks of his servants and states that he's treated them honorably and with justice. Even if they brought a complaint against me, I listened and I acted in a manner that was right. I didn't just disregard it. He says, I've treated the poor very well. Again, that's what his friends accused him of. You've taken advantage of the poor. You didn't treat them well. You've taken advantage of them. But Job says, that's not the case. 
I've treated them very well. I've taken care of the poor, the widows, and the fatherless. I've given them clothing. I've given them food. I've gone out of my way to meet their needs. Chapter 1 and 2 make it very clear that Job was also very wealthy. And he argues, I may have been very wealthy, but I didn't trust in my wealth. I didn't hold my wealth over others. It wasn't a status symbol to me. I didn't flaunt it. I also didn't wish the worst for my enemies. I didn't want them to experience disaster. Even though they opposed me, I didn't want that. It's, it's common knowledge. Uh, sports, sports can be a good example. You just take the New, New England Patriots. People hate the Patriots. Why do they hate the Patriots? Because the Patriots win. So it's common knowledge that individuals who are well-off and successful... They naturally have enemies, right? And Job, Job fits that bill. If, he, if he's one of the more wealthy men in the region, then obviously he's going to have enemies. But Job says, I may have had enemies, but I didn't rejoice when those enemies came across hard times. I didn't want them to feel the pain that I'm feeling right now. All of these character traits and actions, they're noble and they're valuable. They're good things. And Job's confused because if I've lived them all out, why is God against me? I'm being treated like the wicked, but I'm not. This whole chapter, Job's defense, is built on this foundation of an if-then structure. It's essentially what he's saying the whole chapter. If, and then then. He's confident in his character He's confident in his integrity. He's confident in the life that he's lived. So in some sense, it's almost like he's putting God to the test. It's almost like he's asking God, do you really know me? Do you really know who I am? That's why he states things the way that he states them. Essentially, here's what he's saying. If I've lusted after women, feel free to take it out on me. If I've walked in falsehood, if I'm a liar, weigh me accordingly. If I've fallen off the righteous path, then let me reap what I've sowed. If I've committed adultery, (coughs) then let my wife take several men. If I've not been fair and just, then then how am I standing here asking you to be fair and just? If I've withheld from the poor and the less fortunate, then let me be harmed. If I've put all my confidence in wealth, then I'm a liar, then I've lied to God. And if I've taken advantage of the land, then let thorns grow instead of wheat. So Job's saying, if I've done these things, then let these things happen to me. But I haven't done them. Don't you know who I am? Even in the areas where I've fallen short, I've not concealed my sin. That's what wicked men do. That's what Adam did in the garden. He hid. When he sinned against God, he hid. And Job declares that he's confessed his sin before God, even when it cost him something in regards to other people. He says, If I have concealed my transgressions as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my heart, why? Because I stood in great fear of the multitude, and the contempt of families terrified me, so that I kept silent and did not go out of doors. What he's saying is, what most men do when they sin is they try to hide it. They try to keep it hid because they're fearful 
of what it's going to cost them. They're fearful of what other people are going to think. So they don't come out clean and they don't repent. But Job's saying, listen, I'm not that guy. I have come clean. I have offered sacrifices. I'm not afraid of what the multitudes thought. I was only afraid of what you thought, God. And I wanted to make sure that I was in right standing for you. That's why I offered all the sacrifices. I didn't hide my sin. And he's saying that, and in a sense, it's like he's saying, but what has that gotten me? What's it gotten me? I still find myself in the same mess. So it's almost like he's challenging God. You go back to verse 4, and Job asks that question. Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? And maybe that's a rhetorical question that Job's asking because he's frustrated. But it almost feels as though he thinks God's mistaken. He thinks he's being punished by God and he doesn't know why. It doesn't make sense. Even all these things that we just read, it's, it's craziness, it's insanity... Because Job's defended himself. But what's he defending himself from? He hadn't been charged with anything. That's part of what he cries out. He hasn't been charged with anything, at least from God. And so in verse 35, he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. He's essentially saying, God, I wish you would listen to me. I wish you would listen to my cry. And he says, Oh, that I had an indictment written by my adversary. It's just another way to say, why am I being punished? Are you not hearing what I'm saying? Why won't you tell me? Why am I being punished? What's my charge? What am I guilty of? Job's confident in his innocence. And he thinks if God would hear me, I would, I would, I would experience success. It'd be a win for me. If he would really hear me, it would be a win for me. Because I'd give him an account of all my steps and I'd approach him like a prince. What's he saying? Well, I'd approach him confidently. The prince is confident. I'm going to approach God confidently because I know that I'm innocent. But here's the problem. The problem is, what does verse 35 say? Oh, that I had an indictment written by my adversary. The problem is that Job sees God as his adversary. That's how he references him in that verse. But it's not God that's his adversary, it's Satan, right? Satan's the one that brought the charge. He's not being punished by God. Job is not being punished by God, but Job doesn't know that. Job doesn't know it. And his perception of the events that have taken place, that caused him to be frustrated because he doesn't know that, that God's not punishing him. That's just what he thinks. And what we're going to see here very shortly is we're going, to, we're going to hear another man named Elihu speak, but then we're going to hear God speak. And God is going to answer him. And a lot of these things that Job say, God's going to call him on it and say, this is folly. But what can we, what can we learn, just as we wrap up, what can we learn from, from Job's defense tonight? What, what should stand out and what should we learn? The first thing is, it's very unwise for us to long for the good old days. Dale's been going through Ecclesiastes on uh, Wednesday nights, and we just covered this past Wednesday. Ecclesiastes 7.10 tells us it's not wise to look on the past as though it was better than the present. Scripture tells us that's not a wise thing to do because that's born from an impatient spirit. 
that only leads us to anger. And can you sense the anger in Job? Why can't it be like it was before? I don't enjoy what I'm experiencing now. Why can't I have it the way that it was? It's a proud position. It's a proud position. And that's what we're seeing with Job. What's Job saying? I deserve better. I deserve better. I used to have it like this. It's not that way anymore. And I deserve better. That's a prideful position. And it's also true that the good old days had just as much difficulty as the present day. Even if it was better for you. People were still dealing with difficulty. And who are you to want to go back to those days that may have been the day you're in for somebody else? Again, it's a prideful and selfish position that limits what God is doing in the present. When we look back on the good old days and want to speak about how fond they were, we limit what God's doing in the present. I don't want to make light of Job's calamity because he dealt with some very difficult things, some very serious things. But God was working through them, and to navigate through those things selfishly discounts God's purposes and misses opportunities to grow. We don't even want to talk about that. Trial produces character and equips a man for what's to come. In times of difficulty, this is difficult, but it's the truth. In times of difficulty, we shouldn't dwell on the perceived better days of the past, but instead we should be on high alert and on the lookout for the lesson that God's providing and the way in which he's equipping us for the days ahead. What's he doing right now? In my life, do I like this? No. Is this pleasant? No. But what's he doing right now that I'm going to need down the road? How is he building me? How is he equipping me? How is, he's, he's the potter and I'm the clay, right? How is he molding me through this situation so that he can use me later? That's a humble position. Looking back and just wanting the fun times is the prideful position. And we need and with with everything we got, we need to try to avoid the prideful position. And that leads us to the second point that I wrote down, which is God's purpose is always greater than my purpose. God's purpose is always better than my purpose. As a follower of Christ, his purpose must be greater than mine. That's the whole point of John three thirty, right? He must increase, I must decrease. When we focus inwardly, we begin to limit the ways that God will move through us. When we focus inwardly, we limit the ways that God will move through us. Not because He's not capable, but because a selfish disposition refuses the things of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but Galatians 2.20, it says, It's not me that lives, it's Christ that lives in me. I've got to die to myself. Job's in a tough spot because he doesn't understand or know the purpose of God and what he's experiencing. Often we find ourselves in the same situation. The problem is not in our failure to understand God's purpose. That's not the problem. I don't know what God's doing. That's not the problem. The problem is I don't trust that he's doing something. That's the problem. It's not found in our failure to understand God's purpose, but in our failure to trust that he has one. When we do that, when we do that and and fail to see or fail to trust that God has a purpose, our desires and our purposes begin to take precedent. 
And that's only going to lead us down the wrong path. We've got to train ourselves to see with a heavenly perspective. God has a purpose. I don't, may not know what it is, but I'm going to trust that he has one. And I'm going to allow him to mold me and shape me so that he can use me so that he can fulfill that purpose. And then just the last thing that I have down is obedience is a form of worship. Obedience is a form of worship. Job's primary argument parallels the argument that we've seen from his three friends. The righteous are blessed and the wicked are judged. And Job argues that he's righteous and thus the suffering that he perceives as a punishment from God is unwarranted. I shouldn't get it because I'm not wicked. And so we, we go back to chapter 29, the first chapter we looked at, we see all these I statements. They convey the message that I did all these good things and as a result, I'm do something better. If we find ourselves in a similar situation, we, you, I, we would want to defend ourselves just as Job did. And again, I don't want to be too harsh on Job, but his words should cause us to pause a little bit and reflect about the condition of our heart. Why are we obedient? Or better yet, why do we strive, because we're not perfectly obedient, right? Why do we strive to be obedient to God? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not, if you keep my commandments, I will love you. James tells us that good works are the evidence of true faith, but they don't guarantee an easy life full of material blessing. And on, on some level, maybe some small degree, that appears to be Job's argument. Are not my good deeds worth something? Are not my good deeds worth something? And here's the answer. Yeah, they absolutely are. Because... They're an act of worship to our God who gives us what we don't deserve. We can't allow our thought process to become twisted. We don't act as believers. We don't act in order to be blessed. We act in order to bless the one who's already blessed us with salvation. And that's far greater than any material blessing or earthly comfort that we're after. We don't act to be blessed. We act to bless God. Our obedience is a form of worship. And what we need to do is reorient our hearts so that we see it as such. Job says, ah, 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 I did all these things. Shouldn't I get this, this, and this? He's, he's, almost, he's walking a tightrope. I don't, I don't want to speak too harshly, but he's walking a tightrope of equating himself with God. God's the one that's sovereign. God's the one's in control. He's the one that has a plan. I'm simply to be obedient. I may not like the plan. It's not up to me. But I don't act in order to get things. I act as a form of worship. Everything that I do, once we leave these doors, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not going to meet this obligation. But everything that I do, in theory... It should be done as an act of worship to a God who chose to love me first. I don't act as if I'm seeking approval or if I'm looking to get something. I act because he loved me. And I'm just saying, thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word in Job, the things that it teaches us to be and the things that it teaches us not to be. 
Lord, I pray that above all that, that we would seek to be obedient to you and that we would do it out of a sense of, of, of need to worship you, to be grateful and thankful for all the things that you've done, even in times of difficulty when it may not seem like it. Lord, you are the sovereign king and I am not. And I pray that I would orient my life and that we would orient our life as such. That we would recognize who we are and recognize who you are. And that regardless of how our days go, that we would be faithful and obedient to what you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.